Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani. By the time you finish listening to this podcast, three more Americans will be added to the list of those needing an organ transplant, joining about 106,000 others already on the list. We'll be learning much more about organ transplant and donation today from Leslie McMahon, a registered nurse with many years of experience in the field as an organ recovery coordinator and clinical educator. She is currently the organ recovery manager with Donor Alliance, the nonprofit managing organ procurement organization for Colorado and most of Wyoming. Earlier this year, Osmosis was excited to partner with Donor Alliance on a video about brain death. So Leslie, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I'd like to first start with learning more about you. What got you interested in a career in nursing? Sure. Yeah. As an 18-year-old, I applied to college, got in, and honestly didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think uh, career and service to others was in alignment with kind of the person that I am. And so I also like working with kids. So going into orientation week, I think I was in line to feel like elementary education teacher or something like that. So I showed up to that orientation week with my parents and my my dad was actually talking about some of the, some friends of his that were doing travel nursing. And I was really drawn to the idea of the flexibility and the opportunity that nursing offered. Um, so kind of on a whim, I was like, sure, there's a, a nursing school at this university. And I just signed up there that first day of freshman orientation. I would never in that day have assumed half of the opportunities and relationships and the kind of adventures that I've been able to have over my career in nursing. So it's been pretty amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's definitely an extensible career. And I love the parallel you drew to education and healthcare. So much of what the career as a clinician is, is educating and behavior change around patients, as well as you know, you've been a clinical educator, so educating fellow nurses and other staff. Do you want to talk a bit about maybe how you've applied some of that education interest, even as you as a, as a nurse? Yeah, I I don't think a shift or a day at work has gone by where you don't provide education in some way, either you know, kind of formally as precepting or to families explaining diagnoses to them. And I think not everybody is suited to that, but you don't get to work in healthcare without having to do that. So I think by the time I became a clinical educator after years of precepting and um, learning how to make connections work for people, I think that I was pretty well suited to it. And it just, you know, was an opportunity that all that time and experience in nursing kind of allowed me to to do that. Absolutely. And, and the other thing you mentioned is how how kind of it was hard to predict when you were an 18 year old freshman going to college, how many different places this choice of pursuing nursing has taken you to. We've had a number of guests on the podcast who are nurses. One more recently was Sheila Davis, who started her career as a nurse at Mass General during the HIV AIDS outbreak epidemic, wow. and then was involved in the Ebola response and now runs Partners in Health, which is you know a global organization. She's CEO of that organization, no longer practicing, but running a massive organization dedicated to global health and welfare. And that's just one example of a nursing career. So for your career, which has also taken some tip, uh, twists and turns, what got you interested in uh, in the the really important subject of organ donation and transplants? Yeah, so I, I think 
very early on, I was probably still in like new higher orientation at the first uh, children's hospital I worked at in Dallas, Texas. And I can still remember like the uh, transplant or she was an, an OPO staff from Southwest Transplant Alliance down in, in Texas. And they had a donor on the unit that I was working on. And I just remember being so fascinated by what they were doing. I was like awestruck. Um, they the kind of quick timeline and the pace of it and the autonomy that they had, you know, they were writing the orders, they were making all the decisions. And I was just fascinated. And then I think really also drawn to that immediate impact that they were having. Like they were, they were allocating the organs to these recipients that their whole life was going to be changed like overnight. And I don't think there's a lot in healthcare that has that same impact in, in that kind of scale. So I think that was really impactful for me early on in my career. And then fast forward five years, I was working at a PICU in, in Sydney, Australia, and my nurse manager approached me with like this job posting. I don't know if she was trying to get rid of me or <laughs> really thought I was going to be suited to it, but she suggested it for me. And it was like kind of just full circle moment where I was like, absolutely, this would be really cool. So yeah, that's, that's where I got started kind of more officially in donation, but have really always thought it was really interesting in intensive care nursing. Absolutely. And and ex extremely valuable, not only to the recipients, clearly, whose, whose lives have changed, as you said, but also it seems to me to the to the donors themselves knowing and their families knowing that out of a terrible you know loss comes something, a silver lining, even some ray of hope. And there's all these heartwarming stories we hear about of the, you know, the donor's family meeting the recipients and, you know, people listening to the heart, for example, that was, that's beating, that was their child's heart or something like that. So, you, you know, I'm yeah. sure you have countless stories like that. And maybe you can tell us a bit about Donor donor Alliance and the role within the organization, the scale of the organization, and, and feel free to share yeah. any stories too that you may have. Absolutely. I think that once you're in this field and you see, you just see so much beauty of like humanity, I think. On one side, we have that connection to these donor families that we get to meet, and it is absolutely sacred to us being in that space with them. When a person is at their the worst moment of their life, and they can find it in their heart to to think about others and to be giving and see beyond their their grief, um, is just incredible. And to to be able to participate in that with them and help facilitate it is you know, it speaks to why we do the really, really long hours and the really tough work because you get to to walk with people in those moments. You know, you have donor families who are really, really concerned about recipients that we haven't transplanted the organs yet. You know, they're in the ICU saying like, well, if this lab value keeps going up, are, are the recipients going to be okay? And just, it's incredible to, to hear that from someone who is going through the the worst day of their life. And then on the other side, you get to see recipients whose lives changed forever from the generosity of another person. So yeah, so Donor Alliance is the organ procurement organization or OPO that facilitates the process of organ, eye, and tissue donation in Colorado and Wyoming, like you said earlier in the in the intro. So we are a federally designated organization and and Colorado and Wyoming are the donor service area that we cover. We are 
rather like relatively smaller organization around like 160 people, but continuing to grow. Our mission is to save lives through organ and tissue donation. Our vision is to maximize all donation opportunity. And we have very strong core values of integrity, integrity, leadership, excellence, accountability, and people first. I, I kind of live and breathe our mission, vision, and values as do all the people that work at Donor Alliance because our mission is so critical. We have a big focus on relationships and our mission, and we are really focused on performance improvement to be able to maximize donation and meet our mission. So we were a Baldridge Award re recipient in 2018. And I think that that journey kind of drives us and shows us what incredible things having performance excellence does for an organization. So we can continue to try to meet the demands of the recipients in our community. So, I mean, you, again, you started out your career kind of on the front lines and, and now you're doing your manager for organ recovery. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk us through like, what does an average week look like for you? What, what type of things do you do? That's a great question. So I'm one of four organ recovery managers and we manage our clinical team. I also serve as an administrator on call capacity, which is more the day-to-day -day logistics and coordination of a group of staff that is doing like the frontline work still. So as a manager, it's it's people management, it's process improvement, it's you know meeting with our team, that kind of stuff. And then as an administrator, it's again those day-to-day -day operations of donation activity. So it's very time sensitive, very intense, a lot of people to coordinate. We're talking to, you know, we're talking to families in all different places within the two-state area. And we're talking to transplant centers and OPOs all over the country. So the administrator role kind of helps coordinate that so that we we make sure to maximize the gift. Totally. And and so, you know, speaking of the, the gift, uh, uh, you know, I'm curious, in your kind of experience, both being on the front lines, talking to these these families, both donor and recipient, as well as managing now, being one of the major managers at Donor Alliance, what are some of the most effective ways we can get more people to become organ donors and raise awareness? And are there any lessons we can learn from certain states or other countries around how to how to maximize the number of people who, who sign up to be organ donors? I think it's a great question. It's a different answer depending on where you're kind of asking the question. So in general, you know, if we're asking someone to sign up at the DMV to register to be an organ eye and tissue donor, I think important information is appealing to the, the kindness and generosity of people. In Colorado, for example, we have the highest donor designation rate in the nation. Wyoming's not far behind. So <laughs> we have a head start there. But I think it's important for people to understand the need as well. We have over 106,000 people on the wait list to receive an organ transplant. And so I think people being aware of that need is important. But also, you know, with that number, there's some diffusion of responsibility when you go to the DMV because people think, well, other people could be the donor and I don't really need to. So I think understanding the rare opportunity is important as well. Um, less than 2% of deaths in America have the potential to be an organ donor because of the circumstances in which you have to die. So you have to be in an intensive care unit, on a ventilator, 
to even be in a referral for an organ donor. So that filters out a whole lot of, of deaths in the United States because of that situation. So I think people understanding that it is so rare and that's why we need so many people to sign up and say yes to organ and tissue donation. So when that when that moment comes, your family isn't burdened with that decision. You can already have made that for them because yes, it's easy to say, sure, I want to be an organ donor at the DMV. But then when your family is faced with that decision, when they've just been given, you know, a grave diagnosis and been told there's nothing left they can do and they're they're losing their loved one, it's a much harder decision to make with all the grief and and that acute scenario. Totally. And we were talking about this uh, right before the podcast started with our producer, Michael Carice, who spent many years working at University of Vermont Health System. And one thing that came up was, you know, the way to look at it, it seems for for donors is that it actually spares the burden on their families uh, to make that call, you know, during a very tough, tragic time, mm-hmm. as you may have said, the worst day of their, many of their lives you know, having to make that call, not knowing exactly what their kid or family member wanted in that situation. So similar to advanced directives or any any palliative advanced care for for uh, for death and dying, it's kind of a, a good thing for someone, not just for a potential recipient to do to become an organ donor, but to spare their family member or loved ones from having to make that make that decision, right? Absolutely. And I think another important aspect is not just to make the decision yourself, but to share that with the loved one who is going to be asked in in that moment too. So if you had a conversation over the dinner table or, you know, watching some TV show that mentions donations, share that decision and share your, your views and, and your wishes with your family so that they can, you know, when the OPO comes and approaches your family and gives us an option, they can say, Oh yeah, we had this conversation. They we talked about this. They they do want to be a donor, and then it helps them to, like you said, limit another decision they're going to have to be making. There they're making funeral home decisions, final arrangements, and so that that helps certainly for families in in those times. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you know, on this real quick on this topic of like getting more people to sign up to be organ donors, you know, a lot of our audience are current and future healthcare professionals, and you know, they they counsel patients, you know, just like they do a, a depression screening or tobacco screening. What advice would you give to them about you know, is there a role for current students or health professionals to actively you know maybe make that part of their own? conversations with patients on a regular basis? Like, have, have there been any drives that you can think of that, that would be useful for, for our audience to take home? Because they're very engaged. And I could imagine some of our audience being like, wow, that's an interesting idea that I just learned from this interview with Leslie at Donor Alliance. How do I like bring that to my school, my hospital, and like get more of our patients signing up to be organ donors? Any, anything you can point them to? I think first and foremost, having a conversation with their own families. Uh, our healthcare community, our are parts of our community that are trusted, right? So if they're trusting and supportive of organ and tissue donation, then their loved ones are going to look to them to help make those decisions. So if they can share that information with their loved ones, I think that's a really fantastic start. And typically donation comes up more in like acute care settings. So I think for nurses and and hospital staff that are working in those acute care settings, absolutely having the understanding of one of the challenges we have is 
is not being involved early on enough in the in the process of you know end of life conversations or moving towards comfort care this is probably more specific to like intensive care but for any nurses respiratory therapists any staff working in those acute care settings just being aware to loop your OPO in as early as possible so that the family hasn't already made the decision and then the OPO comes in a couple hours later to like then ask his family to change the whole picture with that they've already kind of made and change their plans. So I think just early notification of the OPOs and really having that conversation with your loved ones is is a great start. So just switching tax, um, you know, I understand there are emerging technologies that offer organizations like Donor Alliance opportunities to utilize organs that wouldn't normally be used to meet the demands for transplant needs. Can you talk to us a bit about those developments? Yeah, absolutely. As an industry, we are tasked with meeting the demands of recipients that, you know, we talked about earlier, that huge list of people waiting to receive an organ. Unfortunately, we have a finite pool of donors and, and organs available for transplantation. We cannot manufacture organs. So we have to make the most of the donors and the referrals that we get from the hospitals. So there's a number of strategies that we have in the industry to try to maximize the donor pool and the, the pool of organs that we have. So one of the ways to increase the the utilization of the organs is the perfusion devices. So there are, when I say perfusion devices, I'm referring to like an ex vivo device that once we've recovered an organ, we can put it on a perfusion machine, which are some of them work with, with uh, like donor blood or banked blood. And then some of them work with a cold perfusate solution. And the idea is that you could take an organ which may have been more difficult to use previously. And so, for example, a donor that had had a, a trauma, like a motor vehicle accident, and had CT scan that showed evolving pulmonary contusions, but the PAO2s on, on ABGs are looking really good, and we did a bronch, and the lungs look good from the inside. So we can utilize a lung perfusion device where after procurement, we put the lungs on the device and then they can watch it for a few hours and see, you know, either two sides, maybe the pulmonary contusions are really bad and these lungs aren't suitable for transplant. Or they watch it for a few hours, draw some blood gases and think, yeah, these these lungs actually look perfect and we're gonna transplant them and save a life. So either way you've spared someone from receiving a transplant that wasn't going to work, or you've maximized the use of that lung. So they have those for the heart, where they can put the heart on a box and, you know, watch its function outside of the body before implanting it. They have the same devices for liver and kidneys as well. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Like, the, of course, the, you know, amazing health tech innovations to, to maximize yeah. the ability to take organs that have been procured and make them last longer, make them more accessible. On the other side, on the supply side, uh, there are also, there's a recent trend to use organs that previously might've been considered off limits. Um, I know the mm -hmm. same sort of discussions have been ha had in like the blood banking system. Yep. You know, for example, a deceased donor who struggled with an addiction to opioids. Can you talk a bit about maybe those trends and changes? Sure. So organ donation, because the 
recipient list is a lot of times more acute and more urgent needs. We we do use organs from people that participated in risk behaviors that make them potentially more at risk for communication of transmissible diseases. The you know blood donation and tissue donation, they have a bigger pool of potential donors and they can be a little bit more selective in that pool. And so that's, they do rule out for, you know, IV drug use or other risk behaviors. With organ donors, we utilize different criteria to assess the function of the organs and look to maximize every organ every time. So in an intensive care unit, the staff might be looking at this patient and think this would not be a suitable candidate for organ donation because maybe they're 65, they have a history of hypertension, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes. Um, but if their kidneys are working and they have good baseline kidney function, we know that the kidneys are very resilient and they can turn around after recovery from like a shock state. So we just have a different criteria and sort of a different urgency and need that we we do really feel strongly that we have to maximize every organ on every case. So we'll go after those kidneys that have a creatinine of two if we know that the person has good underlying kidney function or, you know, we have we have the perfusion devices or we have good medical management that we know is effective on these donors. And so we will push one to maximize that gift that that, that person wished to be a donor. So we want to honor that as as well as we can, and then also to increase the pool of donors. So I think, yeah, the the hospitals sometimes, you know, have a hard time seeing through our lens, but that's what we're tasked with as as an OPO is is making the most of the the gift. That that makes a lot of sense. And again, I think it's it's very complex issues, but clearly, you know, a lot of people, very smart people are thinking through how best to allocate. Yeah, we launched this podcast raise line in response to the COVID pandemic and all the different ways that we could be strengthening our healthcare system. I'm curious, how, how has COVID affected uh, the work that Donor Alliance does, and are there lasting changes you think that are going to come out of this pandemic for for the OPOs and and organ donation and transplant? The OPOs are are affected in a lot of the same ways I think that healthcare is in general with burnout, resiliency. Um, staffing shortages. We are having a hard time recruiting and onboarding people just because what people experienced and went through during the pandemic and continue to experience that. So I think that is probably a lasting impact for us is just being able to hire and, and retain the specialized staff that we need to do this work. Being an optimist, I think it the pandemic really honed our skills of agility and being able to make the most of pivoting to figure out how we're going to get donors out of these ICUs that are at max capacity or overflowing. And one of those solutions was transferring donors to freestanding recovery center that Donor Alliance has. So when a donor was identified during the pandemic and those ICUs needed that bed and they that patient out of there, we were able to transfer them to our recovery center where we have uh, intensive care unit essentially 
in a very, very small, small scale of like three beds, but we were able to manage them there to free up uh, the resources that the ICUs needed, which I think has been, you know, we can apply that to a lot of things in the industry to make better use of the resources. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think I agree. One one quote that we often attributed to the to you know, or share during the beginning of the pandemic was uh, a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. And so understanding, you know, becoming a nimble organization, understanding how to pivot, as you mentioned, during the pandemic and, and you know, now two years, two, two and a half years later is a key skill for any organization to get stronger. So again, the way we got connected was, or Donor Alliance and Osmosis was, you know, we're a teaching company. We worked with you on this video on brain death. I'm curious, like, if you could snap your fingers and make like another course or video to teach health profession students and educators about some topic, could be brain death, could be more stuff, what would it be and why? And then maybe any commentary on 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 that video too that we worked with you on. Yeah. Well, I, I would say like a couple of things about nursing career and where I never thought I would be was to work with osmosis to build a video, which was so incredibly cool uh, to make that with your team and what they turned out of like a, a bunch of articles and presentations that, <laughs> that I gave them was just incredible. And that was a really neat process. I think that topic is really great to have out there to educate health professionals and the general public about brain death, which is you know, such a rare occurrence as well, that, that having that information available is, is fantastic. As far as another opportunity, I think it'd be great to have a, a, another video about declaration of death by neurological criteria that digs a little bit deeper into the challenges and how to actually declare someone. So this would be probably more targeted to like intensive care unit staff and, and physicians that do the declarations, but it's such an uncommon uh, process to declare someone brain dead by neurological criteria or dead by neurological criteria. It's not a diagnosis that physicians are making on a day-to-day -day basis. So without that repetition, it's challenging. And there's so many requirements that come to have an accurate assessment and correct documentation that I think a video on, on the American Academy of Neurology recommendations and some of the pitfalls and challenges with declaration would be really useful to have for all the intensive care interdisciplinary people that, you know, come together to make a declaration happen. That's super helpful. Thank you know. Thanks. I'll I'll take that back to the team and we'll see what we can do. And again, like sure. like you all, we're really privileged to be able to work with you and the Donor Alliance and other partners who are you know actually doing the hard work, which is the care delivery, and to be able to to enable that uh, through some education and awareness is is a privilege of ours. So I know we're coming up in time, so I want to be respectful of yours. So I only had two other questions. The first is again your. Yeah. You're a clinician and a clinician, clinical educator. What advice would you give to people who are just starting out their journeys as uh, healthcare professionals or, or students? Yeah, that's a that's a big a big call. I think, as I said at the start, nursing is allows so many opportunities. There's so many different avenues you can go into. You probably can't even imagine. Um, so I would say seek opportunities that allow align with your interests and with kind of your lifestyle. And if you haven't found it yet, keep looking because it's out there. And I think don't be afraid to 
to change and pivot in your career. There's, there's no reason to do the same thing for 50 years. If you don't love it, if you're feeling burnout, if you're feeling, uh, you know, challenges with where you're at, you know, seek other opportunities, possibly an organ donation. There's a big need there. Um, and then I think also to take risks and push yourself. I, I felt underqualified. I felt imposter syndrome and I felt intimidated with every job that I ever took, but I just kind of pushed myself and did a lot of learning on the job. Um, I think in healthcare, you it's continuing education always. And I think there's a lot of on the job learning. So you don't have to be an expert when you apply for that job. I think when you're interviewing, companies are looking for attitude, they're looking for work ethic, and they're looking for enthusiasm. And that'll get you a really long way to having a career you kind of never anticipated. I think that's, that's really fantastic advice. And having having worked and hired many clinicians ourselves at osmosis, totally 100% that the right attitude is is way better than this, the skill set, as long as because uh, you can train for skills, it's much harder to train for attitude. Uh, and also being yeah. open to all these opportunities being, you know, what Louis Pasteur once famously said that um, uh, chance favors a prepared mind. So being being open, having your mind being open to these other opportunities, as yours clearly was, um, you know, has led to some really good good stuff for you individually and for donor alliance as a whole in the community. My last question Absolutely. for you, Leslie, is: Is there anything else you want to leave our audience with about you, about donor alliance, about the space, uh, healthcare in general, anything else? No, I think. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here and to to share the work that Donor Alliance does. We're an incredible organization. And um, I think if, if people can just make their wishes known to their family, go on to uh, donatelife.org and, and get more information about organ, eye and tissue donation, um, I encourage you to do so. And then um, also look for a career in organ donation because it's the most incredible thing I've done in my career. Amazing. Well, I mean, Leslie, thanks so much, not only for taking the time to be with us, but also for working with us on, on creating that that video on brain death. And more importantly, the work that you do, at, at, you know, how you dedicate your career to helping these donor families and recipients, uh, something super meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak with you guys. And thank you for the work that you guys do at Osmosis. It's It's really inspiring. Thanks so much. And, and with that, uh, thanks to our audience for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen the healthcare system and look into great organizations like the Donor Alliance. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.